0: Scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 12:20 20 through 27. This is the NIV version. As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, "I don't need you," and the head cannot say to the feet, "I don't need you." On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be we- weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honor- honorable we treat with special honor. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty-six. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up.
1: Okay. Um, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. I appreciate the uh, good turnout we have today great to enjoy this good weather at least till about 10 o'clock and it'll start warming up a bit but um I had planned you know I don't know if you've noticed or not but our theme for this year is worship anybody notice Daniel cracked a joke a couple weeks ago about you know all the things that I'm finding to say about worship and it may seem a bit redundant though when I plot out the you know in, in the fall prior to each year when I'm sort of brainstorm with people and plotting out the theme for the new year and what kind of community group stuff we could have and what kind of Bible classes we could have and what my sermons will look like. I sort of break down the themes month by month and try to come up with sub themes that relate to that. And one of the ones that I was going to talk about more than I, it turns out I will is corporate worship, uh, what we're doing right now. Um, a lot of times when we hear the word worship, that's what we think it is. I think it's a, a, a lot more there's a lot more that goes into worship than that. But corporate worship is not nothing. It's very important. And so we are going to talk about that this morning. The reason I'm not talking about it as much as I had planned pre-pandemic is because I had all kinds of things planned about you know skill in worship and worship and spirit and accuracy and all these different things that I just feel like there's other things more pressing right now than that. So we, but we are going to talk about that today. You probably noticed that in the past couple of weeks, I've talked about the link between worshiping God, on the one hand, and being connected to one another, on the other hand. How, how that individuals brought together in Jesus, who are sharing life together, comprise an offering up to God, right? Romans 12:1 says that all of us together are a singular living sacrifice to God, and that this is spiritual worship. Or service of worship depending on the version you're reading so all of us together what we're doing together and offering that to God is worship so there's a connection between our connection and our relationship to God the New Testament describes the church in, in terms of, of family language right God is our father it's not the only thing he's described in the Bible as you know he's a, a warrior and a king and all sorts of things but he is often called a father and each of us who are in relationship with that father are called brothers and sisters in the Bible over and over again. Also a third metaphor, we are a body as um, the, the reading that John just uh, gave us reminds us. First Corinthians twelve twenty seven: All of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. So all of us together, that's what we're talking about when we talk about corporate worship. So this body that we composed functions at the behest of its head, who is Jesus. And it brings glory to him. It worships him. But here's the point of all this. The point of all this is that in our collective capacity, in these horizontal connections, if you will, something vertical is going on. Something vertical. Relationship between us and God in heaven is occurring. We offer up worship to the God who brought us together around his son in the first place. And, and one of the most important ways we do that is in corporate worship. And so corporate worship is our focus today. It'd be really weird to have a whole year on worship and not talk about corporate worship. So, you know, maybe I will talk more about it. I don't know. But it is very important because it's in Scripture. Um, I think it's been overemphasized to the exclusion of other equally, if not more, uh, scriptural t- uh, things. Often, because we tend to fixate on just what goes on in a church building, um, but that doesn't mean that what goes on when we are together, uh, collectively in assembled worship, is unimportant. Hardly the case. All right. First of all, what is corporate worship? What do I mean by that term? Just to make you know this clear, I hope hope everybody knows this. We're not referring to corporations, right? I'm not. It doesn't refer to the church taking its cues from or measuring itself by corporate business culture. Though, that's not a throwaway point either because not a few churches are doing just that. whatever they learn in their business meetings, whether the churches needs to be like that. The church should learn from every part of life. The church isn't in a vacuum, it's in the world, right? Um, But to just say a church is successful to the extent that it mimics the ways a corporation acts would be a gross distortion. We're not talking about corporation in that sense. The word corporation in the business sense came from this idea that to limit liability to individual people and their bodies, what could happen to their bodies in terms of not paying their bills or being sued or not having enough to eat for their families, people would be put together as a legal entity as a body, right? That's what a corporation is historically and even today on some level. Its meaning has changed some. But it's treating a bunch of people who are operating in some business venture as a single entity, a body. And it comes from the Latin word corpus. We get the word corpse from that, or Corpus Christi, Texas, Body of Christ, Texas on the Gulf Coast, and a bunch of other words, corporal punishment, things like that. So corporate worship is what we do together as an assembled body, and the key word is body, corpus. And I want to make this really clear because a lot of us come from a long history, decades, our entire life of an almost exclusionary uh, emphasis on corporate worship. Assembled worship um, is not the only kind of worship. In fact, most of the worship we do is not corporate. It's how we live our lives individually, because that's about 98% of our lives. It's what happens individually in our family capacity, as citizens out in the community, as business people and students and uh, teammates and so on. That, that takes up way more of our time than what we may do here. And we've talked about this in recent sermons, how worship is a way of life. Being transformed is your spiritual service of worship. Transformation is a 24-7 proposition. And really, every good thing that you or I do, if we do it in a conscious, conscious honoring of God and, and out of gratitude to God, it is a form of worship. Do we realize that? Even seemingly mundane activities that we think of as, quote, secular are actually unto the Lord. I'm quoting Paul in Colossians 3.23, where he says this. Notice the universal language here, the universal scope. Whatever you do, work heartily as unto the lord you are serving the lord christ now you're doing your job you're working he says or anything else whatever you do act as though the the audience for that activity all of your life is unto the lord you're serving him it's a form of worship it's a form of devotion to the lord that's going on Whether we recognize it or not, we may be doing it poorly. We may be abdicating our responsibility. But all of life, the whole world is God's. Do we really think God only cares about Sunday morning inside a church building? Isn't he Lord of everything? Creator of heavens and earth? King of kings, Lord of lords? The whole earth is full of his glory, Isaiah said. Worship should reflect that. Paul says in Colossians three seventeen, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God. The reason I need to emphasize this, and you may be thinking, some of you who get this already probably thinking, he talks about this a lot. I just hear so many comments and it's just in our culture. It's in the modern West, it really is. It's part of Western heritage to, to move away from nature. Richard Baucom talks a lot about this in his work on the Bible and ecology, the Bible and the world, creation, nature, however you want to style it. He talks about how basically since the Enlightenment or even maybe the early modern period, the West, we try to define humanity over against nature, like we're emancipating ourselves from the real world, the world of flesh and blood. We're not subject to all that. We're above it. Our technology will liberate us from that, which is not the way medieval and ancient people saw it. We were more part of the web of the world God made. And I think that bleeds over into the way we read the Bible and the way we understand something like worship. There is a kind of dualism in the heads of many Christians that too readily divides all of life into sacred versus secular categories. And it relegates almost everything, except what's done inside a church building, to the latter category. Well, that doesn't leave very much for God. He gets about 1% of our lives. And we end up saying things like, well, that's just business. Say, what? Christian elder who's a businessman has something a little shady or a little bit self-oriented, a little bit harsh, hurtful to other people, that's just business? What's that mean? Is there an exemption for business? You see what I'm saying? This has real import, real uh, application and manifestation to the world we're living in. The fact is, the thrust of Scripture, of the whole Bible, from Genesis 1 in the creation account all the way through the end to the new creation in Revelation 21 and 22, is that the physical, material world matters to God, that all of it, in a sense, is sacred. He made it. It was his idea. didn't have to, but he did, and he called it good. And so in 1 Timothy 4, when uh, false teachers who would deny the goodness of created things like physical marriage or eating certain foods, Paul responds this way in, in 1 Timothy 4. He says, basically, it's a heresy to say that. You're not being spiritual when you say things like that. You're being pagan. He says, for everything created by God is good. Everything and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy. This is worship language. When you're eating food or being married, he says if you're thankful for it and you're prayerful about it, it is made holy by what God says about it, by God's word. That's worship language. The seemingly mundane becomes sacred. God, after all, became physical, didn't he? He became matter in Christ with the Incarnation. I mean, if there ever was a statement that matter matters, it's God becoming flesh. And what about what Don just taught us or reminded us of? The Lord's Supper. Here is the way that the Son of God, before his exit from this world, chose for all of his people from that point on to remember the high lofty spiritual uh, truths of fellowship, communion with him and with one another. Those are spiritual things, right? That's religion. His method? A physical meal composed of very earthly ingredients. Bread and wine? What's more ordinary throughout world history? I want to share with you a quote from a book by Gisela Kreglinger that I've been reading. She says this, the Lord's Supper challenges dualistic understandings of spirituality. In the Lord's Supper, we embrace, cherish, and practice the God-given interconnectedness between spiritual and material realities. We learn to see the extraordinary in the ordinary. The use of seemingly ordinary things, such as bread and wine in the Lord's Supper, challenges us to see everyday aspects of our lives are imbued with spiritual meaning. All right. But appreciating that all of my life, all of the world, if thought of correctly in a godly, biblically supported way, belongs to God. It's all worship in that sense. That being said, that hardly means that you or I should go to the other extreme. of devaluing corporate worship, right? Let's not commit the logic fallacy of, of a false dichotomy, right? When we as a body assemble together to worship, we are doing something exceedingly important. And I realize that the present crisis that we're in, the pandemic, makes this more of a challenge. That due to equally biblically supported directives of neighbor love and brotherly love all over the Bible, all over it. We can't assemble in each other's physical presence as freely and frequently as we might like. So, you know, it might seem a little odd that I've, that I've picked this time to talk about corporate worship. You're thinking that's like the hardest thing in the world to pull off. Why are we talking about that? Here's one reason. First of all, I planned this back in October Another reason is maybe this sense of deprivation that we're all you know, experiencing right now, missing each other, physical presence and all that, maybe that can serve to put in bold relief the preciousness of assembling together. Maybe we can appreciate something more now that we find it a little more rare, a little harder to come by. So consider with me just for, for a few minutes why we should ascribe such great import to corporate worship, to our assembling together. Two or three takeaways. First of all, this is something God instituted. It's not, my, it's not some preacher's idea. It's not something human beings just made up. And it's ultimately, and hear me out on this one, because I, I, I'm going to quote in a few minutes, Hebrews 10, 24, 25. Some of you have already been dreading that we're going there. Because you've heard that passage abused so many times as a kind of mic drop, trump card, checklist backing you know, proof text, that you hear that and you almost can't even read the text in its context and take the point the Holy Spirit inspired writers trying to give us because you instantly start queuing up the rebuttals, right? You have, there's several passages like that for me. I have trouble actually reading them now because they've been so conflicted or distorted that I'm thinking of my comeback, and I often am falling prey to the very thing I'm against, which is taking it out of context and not not getting the real sense. But anyway, I want to say this. Assembling together isn't ultimately the crotchet of some crusty tradition-bound preacher. I realize some people have falsely reduced faithfulness, quote unquote, to a church attendance checklist. You know? So-and-so's not faithful. What do you mean by that? He doesn't come to church. As if there, there you go, you get the whole thing. You can attend church three times a week and be very unfaithful. I think all of us have known people. We've probably been there in parts of our life. You can't reduce faithfulness to coming to church. But I want to say this. It's hard to remain faithful very long without assembling with your brothers and sisters. And the reason Christians, quote, go to church in the first place is because the practice is found in the New Testament in the Word of God. I realize we're the church, so it's kind of weird to say go to church, but if the word means assembly, ecclesia, there's a sense in which we do go to assembly. It doesn't exhaust all that church is, but it's certainly part of it. If the Bible is believed, Acts, early on in Acts, often in Acts, we see them assembling together, right, daily, Luke tells us, daily. What if the elders here said, you know what, we're gonna start meeting seven days a week. How, how well would we pull that off? Daily, in homes and in the temple. Years later, in Paul's 1 Corinthians letter, written probably two decades later-ish, we, we read him just talking about the church assembling on the regular. He doesn't tell them to do it, he just assumes they are. And that's why I had John read in the scripture reading of 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. Uh, it, and back in chapter 11, verse 18, two passages that frame that in extensive discussion of the church being a body with interdependent body parts are these two statements. Notice how he just, in, in passing, assumes they're assembling. First, first Corinthians 11, uh, 18, when you come together as a church. He says it doesn't say, hey, come together as a church. He, you are doing that, everybody is. So when you do that, you're messing up the Lord's Supper, and we need to address that. Then at the end of it, as another bookend on the body discussion, in chapter 14 he says, what then, brothers? When you come together, you need to do everything for edification. He doesn't, it's not even optional. Remember 1 Corinthians 16, when they need to take up a collection to help needy saints? He says, oh, oh do it when you're coming together. That, it's almost like it's just logistics. Like, you're already there, why not do it then? He knows they're going to be together. This isn't something some preacher made up. This is from the Word of God. And it's telling that these references to the Corinthians assembling regularly frame the whole lengthy passage of Paul's likening the church to a body in which each member of that body plays an indispensable role. Could it be that the simple act of assembling together is crucial to keeping those members connected together as a body? Those aren't unrelated things. And I'll remind us that these texts are inspired by the very Spirit of God. As our Creator, God knows what we need better than we ourselves do. And so that's the second thing I want to say to you. Not only did God institute it, but your own soul needs it. As one member of a body composed of other members, you have needs that only they, directed, of course, by Christ the Head, can meet. Spiritual nourishment, protection, healing. Imagine your own body, to use the word body Paul uses so often for the church. Imagine your foot trying to provide its own blood supply. You know, the reason you can move your foot is because it's getting, you know, uh, oxygen rich hemoglobin and whatever else, Daniel can flesh it out later, but uh, no pun intended. It's getting its energy from blood supply. What if your foot's disconnected and it just says, you know, I'll get my own blood supply, I'll be good. How long is that foot going to, how long is it going to be before it's, you know, turning gray and rotting? (laughs) Or imagine your heart, if it's sick, trying to obtain meds for its healing if it's detached from the feet and hands that can go get the meds, and we can get multiply examples. If we're a body, folks, we're a body. We need connection. We cannot meet all of our spiritual needs on our own, and assemblies, they're not the only thing, but they are among the most powerful occasions for receiving the spiritual nutrition and admonition and encouragement we need. Our sisters and brothers, are the hands and feet of Jesus' body. When we are weak and worried, we hear them pray for our strength, assembled together. When our hearts are diverted to other loves, it is the songs of our brothers and sisters sitting near us that refocus our hearts on our one true love. At times we feel alone, all alone in the world, and then we eat the Lord's Supper And we're reminded that we are not alone, but in communion with real people struggling in the same real world, serving a real embodied Christ. Let me make a side note here about Zoom. I'm glad we got folks who can be on Zoom. There are going to be people in this pandemic who should not be here. They're at higher risk. It would be ridiculous of me as a Christian, given all the things said in the Bible about neighbor love, to make somebody feel guilty for, you know, not doing something that they feel convicted, you know, risk their health. When a young woman gives birth to a baby, we've seen this here, and the doctor says, hey, you need to keep the baby away from church for, I don't know how long they're saying now what is it, six weeks or eight weeks, something, something, am I close to right-ish? Do any of us go, you ought to be here at church? Trust God with your baby. Who says that? Somebody's got immune comp- compromise, uh, you know, uh, health because of whatever they're going through, and the doctor says, you need to not be anywhere, and if you are, wear a mask. If it's absolute, Who of us lays on that person a guilt trip? So that's not what I'm saying, and I hope that disclaimer covers that. I, I, Zoom is a blessing, especially when folks cannot be here. But I want to say this as well. Zoom, or anything else that is, quote, virtual, look it up, it means not real, can never, ever truly replace flesh and blood embodied togetherness. Why? Because God created a physical, material world and called it good. That's what we are. And to just say, you know, I'm just going to Zoom forever. And there's a lot of folks, I'm, I'm reading articles on it going, you know let's do Zoom all the time. Churches are losing members because of this. I know some preachers who, not just over the mass controversy that Don, I think, was alluding to, I think, that kind of stuff, the politicization, but just the whole, eh, this is kind of convenient. Yet another casualty of coronavirus, possibly. Theologically, it's really difficult to make the case that we're just sort of brains on sticks. They were disembodied spirits. Isn't that what the heresy in second and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John is really about? You're starting to get a kind an of early Gnostic sort of thing, a nascent Gnosticism where Christ didn't, you don't have to think that he came in the flesh. No, the enfleshment is, that's what makes Judeo-Christian doctrine so different, one of the things, from a million paganisms which have all these dualisms. the reason that's annoying is because we live in a, a world with real stuff, that's, that's molecules banging together in some way, I don't know what that was, a lack of muffler, I don't know. But that, we are connected in real ways, so we, we can't disembody ourselves, and we're, we're not immaterial spirits, we're not minds behind screens, God gave us bodies. So I'm not making a statement on. I, you know, I don't want us to get in a situation where after this is over, if it ever is. You know, we just go well, zoom more, zoom more, real church. I don't know. <laughs> they assembled. But it's a blessing to have it when we need it. How we'll work that out, I don't know. Something to think about. I'm trying to give a biblical basis, though, for the way we think about it. Thirdly, God instituted it. Your own soul needs it. And 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 finally, and briefly, your sisters and brothers need the inspiration and the admonition that you provide them in corporate worship. Jesus, after all, said that the essence of following him was serving other people. Sacrificing your own interests on behalf of others. Giving, he said, is better than receiving. And when you and I miss corporate worship, when we could come and just choose not to, that's what I'm talking about. Nobody on Zoom take offense at this. I'm talking about when we choose. Just don't really feel like it. Just a hassle. When I miss corporate worship, I miss a golden opportunity to give my brother or my sister gifts that help equip them for eternity. And here comes the text that some of you have probably been dreading. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together or forsaking the assembly, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, if every time I hear this text invo- invoked, rather, the first thing my mind runs to is how wrong the crotchety preacher is who insists that just one absence equals forsaking the assembly. If that's where my brain instantly goes every time, I may be a lot closer to his thinking than I realize. <laughs> I've, I've allowed him to sort of um, set the terms of the discussion. You see what I'm saying? Both, myself and the crotchety preacher, you're probably thinking, you're the crotchety preacher, both miss the larger point of that text. It's actually not about me and my rights. It's not about how much leeway I'm allowed. It's not even talking about that. What's it saying in context? It's about my opportunity to encourage other people to, quote, stir them up to love and good works. It's a weird thing to have a conversation about that. How many times before it counts, before I can, I can, I can, not have to, not... It's actually saying you have an opportunity to help other people. And something fairly important, think about this phrase, love and good works. How important is love in the biblical universe? Think of any other passages where love is mentioned. (laughs) Loving God and loving your neighbor is only the essence of the entire Bible. The great command. Good works, according to Paul in Ephesians 2.10, that's the purpose for our new creation in Christ, the very purpose in Ephesians 2.10. He is careful to say we're not saved by our works, but then he says this, we are saved unto works. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So so when I'm stirring you up, or you're stirring me up to love and good works, basically what we're doing is stirring each other up to, to be Christians, to be new creation. I think it's really interesting that in Galatians, when Paul is combating those Judaizing teachers, he uses the word the phrase new creation as a kind of shorthand or catch-all term for another phrase, and that is faith working through love. So in Galatians 6.15, um, I, I can't find it real quick, but something like this. He says in Galatians 6.15, uh, circumcision doesn't matter and uncircumcision doesn't matter, but uh, what matters is new creation. But back in chapter five, or chapter earlier, he says the identical thing, but there's a switcheroo at the end. He says, circumcision doesn't matter, uncircumcision doesn't matter, but faith working in love, which is to say, in the in the idioms of Galatians, in the logic of Galatians, faith working through love is new creation. And that's exactly the two things Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 tell us not to neglect. Assemble together because you're stirring each other up. You're encouraging and admonishing and reminding and Retelling the narrative, which is we are the embodiment of new creation already before it's here in some consummate form, you know, at the end. Living out faith, working through love. So easy to forget who we are, isn't it? But in corporate worship, when we assemble together, you are playing a role in my cosmic destiny. I am playing a role in your eternal whereabouts. Assembling together is not an option. It's not an extra, like a hair product or nail polish, right? You put on your body as an ornament. It's not an accessory. Assembling together is the table where the body comes to find its life-giving nourishment. Thanks a lot for your attention.